era in independent art celebration. Indecent exposure. You were convicted of indecent exposure for the third time. That's exactly what it is there, Poindexter. It is four counts of indecent exposure. Hello, hello. You might not recognize this voice, but don't touch that dial because you are listening to Indecent Exposure at the Greylock Glass at greylockglass.com. My name is William McGuire, and I will be your host for this 10th episode of Indecent Exposure. Today is Friday, September 4th, and we have a very interesting experience in store for you. You will be hearing two interviewers, two stories, and music from two artists, all in one episode. First, I will be talking with Peter Wise. He is a sound designer, composer, and percussionist, but today, we will be speaking to him about his role as the co-artistic director at Bizarre Productions, host of the brand new monthly Fringe Music Series that is beginning tonight as part of Pittsfield's First Friday's Arts Walk. Fringe Music promises to bring new, innovative sounds right to the Berkshires, with performances on the first Friday of every month between September and December, starting with the renowned solo bassist, Eleanor Oppenheim. In this episode, you will hear Peter and I discuss the series, innovative music, the Berkshire's music scene, and what to expect in tonight's performance. You will also hear excerpts from Crocodile, a track on Eleanor's upcoming debut solo album, Home. So, without further ado, let's get to that interview with Peter Wise, co-artistic director of Fringe Music. Welcome, Peter Wise. Thanks so much, William. Thanks for having me. So, for those who don't know, what is Fringe Music? Well, Fringe Music is a new series that we're starting at Shire City Sanctuary. It's going to be a monthly series on um, the first Friday of every month, coinciding with the first Friday Arts Walk. And I say that it's a new series, but um, really it's something that we've been doing for 10 years um, uh, as part of the Berkshire Fringe. And um, we had a series called 30 Live that was a pre-show music series uh, before the theater productions we did. And we're just taking a little hiatus from producing the Berkshire Fringe this year, so we wanted to have a chance to continue to bring some of these uh, musical artists up uh, and, uh, you know, show the community uh, what they're doing. And um, so this collaboration with Shire City, which is where we did the festival uh, last year in 2014, uh, seemed to be a really good way to do that. And how is this uh, music series different from the Berkshire Fringe Festival that you used to hold every summer? Well, uh, it's nice that it's broken out and it's just, you know, we're just doing one concert per month. Uh, it gives us the chance to really uh, focus on each artist as they come and um, let people know what they're doing instead of having to, um, you know, previously we had a music series going on at the same time as a theater festival and we also had workshops and just all this stuff crammed into uh, a couple of weeks and that uh, has its own merit and is very exciting, but this is uh, a, a great chance to kind of showcase one thing at a time, um, which is really, really looking forward to that. So it sounds uh, like you're going for a more focused experience. Yeah, and you know, it's just also that it happens to be spread out um, over the over the calendar in the fall, 
Um, and, you know, it's just nice to have the opportunity uh, to uh, give our, our time and resources one at a time to each of these uh, great musical artists that we've got coming in. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a great idea, and I'm sure that the people of Pittsfield are going to love to have new musical acts coming in every single month. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the musical acts you're bringing in and why you're bringing in these types of musical performances? Yeah. Well, uh, starting this Friday on September 4th, Eleanor Oppenheim uh, is a fantastic bass player, and um, she's going to be here doing a solo set, um, which is, I don't know, kind of an unusual thing, I suppose. Uh, you know, you, you do hear uh, more frequently about, uh, you know, a violin solo or a piano solo concert, uh, but hearing a bass solo concert is a little bit more unusual. So, um, and the other thing that the series is kind of dedicated to is uh, promoting newly created music. And in fact, our whole organization, Bizarre Productions, is uh, committed to new work and emerging artists. So um, what Eleanor is going to be doing is uh, playing some music from her new album called Home. And I'm not quite sure which pieces she's going to do, but she has commissioned all of these new compositions um, from people who are you know, mostly mostly friends of hers who also happen to be amazing composers, mostly living in the, the New York City area. And um, she's spent a lot of time and energy over the last decade, uh, you know, amassing this new repertoire for the solo bass. And she's going to um, show us what she's got uh, on Friday. So I'm really looking forward to it. excited for new music I am um, but can you tell us a little bit more about what you're looking for when you think oh well this is a new piece you know this is something that we haven't heard before um, what kind of qualities do you look for in those types of pieces yeah absolutely I mean I think there's a whole new generation of artists out there that are doing really interesting things, uh, kind of not just combining genres, but, uh, you know, just kind of eliminating the whole boundary uh, between genre that we kind of typically think of. And, um, you know, a, a lot of them are taking and uh, incorporating just all kinds of music that, uh, you know, 30 years ago was uh, something that you would, be it would be frowned upon to kind of include within uh, an academic world kind of composition, and it, it really makes for some very exciting music. And uh, there's a lot of electronic components to some of the stuff that Eleanor's doing, and uh, just 
lots of different styles being being uh, merged and uh, you know taken taken into account and yeah I, I really I really like uh, you know we're we're looking for you know people that are doing music of a really high caliber and also that combines all these different uh, kinds of ideas in a in a successful way. Okay, sounds great. And you're um, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're a Stockbridge man, is that correct? Yeah, I I grew up in Lee and Stockbridge, and uh, yeah, uh, I was in uh, New York City and Brooklyn for ten years, and back and forth uh, during that whole time, actually producing the the Fringe Festival here in the summer, and. Um, yeah, so, so I'm uh, back in the back in the area, living in Pittsfield full time now, and uh, really excited to kind of engage with the community directly again throughout the whole year with this new series. So, can you tell us a little bit more about the art scene in the Berkshires? Uh, I'm imagining you've seen much more of it than your typical Berkshire resident. Well, you would think that I have seen much more of it, but um, uh, this summer has been uh, kind of a, a special treat for us. We we took a little hiatus from producing the Fringe, like I said, and we we did do a ten day residency to start developing our own new theater piece called Passage. Um, but uh, outside of that, we've had a little bit more of an opportunity to go and see all the all the fantastic art that's happening in the summer here in the Berkshires. Um, and, you know, it's, it's all very uh, well known how, how lucky we are, how rich the art scene is in the summer. Um, but I think there's also um, more and more some of the larger venues are uh, expanding into year-round programming. And that's great. And the niche that we're trying to fill is to try to have some programming that's um, about uh, emerging artists and kind of uh, a newer generation of, of what's, what's going on and, you know, uh, show people a little bit of that aesthetic as well. Does it seem to you like it's changed much since you were younger or did it always seem like it was going in this direction? Um, I mean, yeah, things have definitely changed since, uh, since I was much younger, um, really seeing, um, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm totally excited and grateful to be living in a place where there seems to be like a lot of support and growth for the arts in general. Um, and, you know, part of our mission is to the uh, kind of kind of push push the boundaries of things and uh, you know push things in a in a different direction and I think we've seen that seen that happen um, and yeah it's exciting yeah and you're you're among great company because we've got you know a lot of great festivals that are very well renowned now we've got. Williamstown Theater Festival, Williamstown Film Festival is going to be starting. There's Bang on a Can in Mass Mocha. Um, where do you see yeah. 
Berkshire Fringe or Fringe Music's place amongst all of these other well-renowned festivals? Well, it's it's funny that you brought up the uh, Bang on the Can Festival at Mass Mocha because um, I w- actually attended that festival for the first two years it ever existed. Oh wow! In, in 2002 and 2003, as a percussionist, um, so that was quite a while ago now, and that festival is just going strong and uh, you know better every year, and it's also become quite an establishment. Um, in itself, um, you know, it, it's very prestigious to to get in there, especially in the uh, you know, yeah. well, well, both the both the composition and uh, the performance aspects of it. But um, yeah, and that's uh, was really a defining musical experience for me. Uh, you know, getting to be there and uh, experience all this really kind of new and crazy music and um yeah that's influenced me and um actually a lot of people that are on this series are people either that i met directly at the Diane Kitten festival or people that i you know they've gone a different year than we have friends in common and um you know, I'm not necessarily exclusively programming from people that went to uh, Banglewood, as we call it, but mm-hmm. it just kind of happens that um, the people that are most interested in the kind of music that I'm most interested in tend to go through there as a, um, you know, a, a corridor into the the New York new music world. So Bang on a Can is more of an inspiration, even a friend of Berkshire Fringe. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, Bang on a Can. Oh, both Mass Mocha and Bang on a Can are just uh, really fantastic institutions doing doing a lot of great stuff. Mm-hmm. And they they finished up last month, so now it's your turn to continue bringing in the new innovative uh, yeah, music. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that's uh, a great way. Great way of thinking of it, I guess. And between you, Bang on a Can, Mass Mocha, and all the other organizations that are working to try to revolutionize art and make art in the Berkshires a you know cultural phenomenon, um, a great new place of innovation, where do you see arts and music going um, in the future, in the next couple of years, or in the long term? Hmm, that's a great that's a great question. I mean, um I feel like you know, we've we've kind of gotten to this this place where um I don't know, it, it, it may be that it's a, a a little bit of a a foolish notion to think of uh, you know, this this kind of art as progressing to an ultimate pinnacle where it will be perfect and amazing and the the most great thing ever. You you know, I'm I'm not sure I totally buy into that. And what I'm really more looking for is, you know, uh, people that are doing something that's, you know, taking, not ignoring what's, what's come before them, really, really taking their inspirations to heart 
doing something that's really of a high quality, high, high caliber musicianship and, um, you know, just doing something with heart really. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I think if, if each artist takes all those things into account, then, um, we'll continue to get new and exciting things happening all the time. Um, and we don't have to necessarily be, um, thinking of a, a, a trajectory of progress and that, that kind of a notion. Um, does that make sense or am I just yeah. rambling? <laughs> <laughs> no, that makes, that makes perfect sense. Um, I guess I'm just wondering, being in the Berkshires is a very unique experience for me. And I'm curious if you found more inspiration or just a different mood that pervades your music or the music of your friends or the people you're inviting to the festival um, just from being in the Berkshires, performing and recording in the Berkshires. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to say because I, I feel like um, every, everywhere I go, these kind of different worlds I'm involved with, either traveling and playing music myself or going to see music that's coming from, you know, all over the world, really, to perform here in the Berkshires. Like, it all kind of bleeds together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're really lucky that, uh, you know, there's both so much, so much good stuff happening natively here at home and, you know, so much just fantastic world-class stuff coming, coming through our doors. Um, uh, so yeah, it's hard for me to like kind of differentiate that world from, from my other worlds because it all kind of, um, seems to be one thing in the end, really. Yeah. And that's how you get inspired by new people were doing something that you had never heard before. Yeah, absolutely. performance it's the first performance of fringe music after taking your hiatus so actually one of the the first summer production of bizarre productions um yeah that's that's correct we we did some workshops of of passage earlier this summer in in millbrook but this will be the first thing we've done this year in the berkshires so that's really exciting and i mean the collaboration with shire city is really exciting too because um, and uh, really with the, the city of Pittsfield's First Friday Arts Walk thing that they, they've got going on, um, which is primarily uh, the, the First Friday Arts Walk is primarily a visual arts and gallery thing, but more and more it's been expanding into, um, you know, just a, a general event where people can, you know, come and experience art of all sorts and, um, you know, 
kind of get to know what the what the community is up to. And so Shire City has been doing um, these gallery openings in their downstairs space for quite a while now. Um, so we're kind of hopping on board and partnering with them and hoping that we can accomplish a little bit of the audience cross-pollination that we have going with the uh, music series at the Berkshire Fringe, where um, something that would happen there is that we would, you know, see people who were coming in for a particular theater production. They weren't necessarily going to, you know, see the brochure listing for this particular musical artist, but they happened to be there, you know, getting ready to see this other theater show that they had decided they wanted to see. And they just happened across this musical artist and they really liked what they heard. And conversely, you know, we would get people who came for the music and we could convince them to stay for this, you know, theater production, maybe something they'd never heard of, but then they really ended up enjoying that too. So we're really trying to, you know, get a little bit of cross-pollination between genres, between uh, different artistic mediums. And so um, a couple things that are happening on Friday, um, there's a permaculture garden that's just been installed this year at the uh, Shire City in their uh, rectory lawn space that they have. Uh, it's not a lawn anymore. Now it's a permaculture garden. So there's going to be a tour <laughs> of that starting, I think it's at 4 or 4.30. And um, yeah, so then that uh, kind of leads into the gallery opening starting at 5. And there's a, a artist, uh, Susan Petit, I think I'm saying that right. Um, she's a botanical artist. So that kind of ties in with the garden tour. And then um, Eleanor's uh, Eleanor Oppenheim's uh, solo bass set will start at seven. So we're really hoping that you know people will come, maybe check out the garden tour, you know, maybe go and get a bite after that. Come check out the botanical art that's on the walls. Talk to the artists. All the artists will be there, um, and then um, just stick around and listen to the concert. So. Um, hoping to get a really interesting mix of people there. It all sounds very interesting. And was that cross-pollination, as you called it, something that you had in the forefront of your minds when you were looking to start this music series, or was it something that just fell into place? Well, it's not necessarily something we were, you know, looking for, but it's something that we knew worked from our past experience. And so when we were talking with uh, the folks over at Shire City Sanctuary about, you know, how we could um, get a music series happening, um, this just really made sense um, to kind of collaborate this way and try and try and share audiences and, and build an exciting evening out of it. So kind of how that happened. Yeah, and it's very interesting how all that came together, how you're blending these genres almost seamlessly. It seems like it was a match made in heaven. Absolutely. And, um, well, uh, Crispina French, who uh, a lot of your listeners might know, is just phenomenal and uh, has been really helpful to us over the last couple of years, uh, both in, in moving the Berkshire Fringe to Pittsfield last summer and in helping us uh, 
brainstorm and get this new series off the ground and um yeah just uh you know opening their space to us for for the music series and yeah it's uh it's really exciting and they're just uh terrific people to work with over there yeah so it seems like a lot of planning has gone into this and so i'm curious why eleanor for your first performance what about her seemed right for a first performance well, I mean, she did a, I forget if it's a Kickstarter or some, some other similar thing for, for her album to record all of these pieces. And um, I was familiar with all four of the composers that are on this, this album. And um, I just really was curious to, to hear these works. And, you know, I checked out some of the audio samples that she has and uh, yeah. I, I was aware of the, the upcoming album and, um, you know, really wanted a, a chance to, uh, you know, share what what's going on there with, with this community. So, and honestly, uh, selfishly <laughs> for myself being up here to, to, to bring some of these projects I'm most interested in and, and hear them live. Yeah. Yeah. That's perfectly within your right. And it, Sounds like it's going to be a great concert, so it seems like you have good taste, and I'm sure we're all excited to share in what you've discovered and what you're going to be dis- bringing to us in the next coming Absolutely. months. Can you tell us Absolutely. a little bit more about what we can expect beyond Friday? Yeah, there's there's two other uh, concerts that we we have confirmed so far, um, and one of them is the Hands Free, uh, which is just a, a phenomenal group that's just really starting out on their their journey as a as an ensemble so uh it's uh an acoustic group and just really has an all-star lineup um james moore is the guitar and banjo player and um he's really i think been the the kind of ringleader of this this whole operation and uh, he plays with the uh Dither Quartet is a fantastic electric guitar quartet that has uh, come to some notoriety at this point. And uh, yeah, just really, really fantastic string player. And um, Nathan Kofi is a accordion player in the group. And um, yeah, I've, I've had a chance to work with all of these musicians and they're just really all quite fantastic. Um, Nathan plays with a whole bunch of new music groups in uh in New York City and uh is originally from uh the North Carolina area. Got some groups down there that he still plays with too and um also does a bunch of work playing uh accordion, horn, music directing. He's just all over the place and uh super, super talented musician. And then Eleanor uh, Oppenheim, who is uh, doing her solo set this coming Friday, is actually in the group as well. So um, get a get a chance to maybe talk to her about uh, what what we can look forward to with the hands free when she uh, comes and is in the room with us on Friday. And uh, the the fourth player in the hands free is Carolyn Shaw, and she's. Uh, not only uh, 
fantastic composer and uh, singer. We just saw her up at Mass Mocha singing with a room full of teeth. Um, I don't know if you've heard of that. But just really amazing uh, group. Uh, but uh, she is not singing or composing. In this case. She's playing violin, which she's uh, also amazingly talented at. So um, the, the the kind of level of players in this group is is amazing and they're just uh i think this is kind of a chance for them to let loose artistically and uh you know match up some of the ideas that are somewhere in the middle of folk jazz and uh contemporary classical and they just kind of mush them all together into these lush sonic textures and uh i'm really looking forward to that show it's it should be uh a lot of fun. Yeah, it sounds like you have quite the lineup for us coming into the next yeah. few months. And indeed, uh, can you remind us you're going until December? Is that correct? Yep. It's there's going to be a concert uh, along with a new gallery artist opening from Shire City every uh, first Friday of the month through December. So. It'll be four four concerts total and four new gallery artists and uh, yeah should be a lot of fun. If you can't remember the exact date, it's just every month on the first whatever the first Friday of that month is. Yeah, that that sounds like a great way to start the month. And beyond fringe music, just to uh, wrap up here, I'm curious. You are doing far more. You have the um, Kick Wheel Ensemble Theater, which is. Uh, the creative arm of Bizarre Productions. And uh, can you tell us what else we'll be expecting out of Bizarre Productions and anything else you're working on? Uh, yeah, I mean, we had a really exciting summer um, getting getting a real solid uh, uh, feel for our next production, which is called Passage. And um, yeah, we, we had an opportunity to be in uh, Millbrook, New York for 10 days, and um, we got a lot of fantastic uh, writing and creative work on our feet done, and I even had time to uh, write a couple of songs that are hopefully going to make their way into the mm -hmm. final production. And um, yeah, I wish I had more details for you, but we're definitely planning on doing a workshop production of that. Uh, at some point this year um, in the Berkshires. So, uh, yeah, we'll keep you posted as soon as we have more details. Uh, the really fun thing about that group right now is that there's people from all over the country coming wow. together <laughs> in this ensemble. We have um, people involved in the project from um, uh, Ohio, from the Berkshires, from New York City, and um, so having a chance to come together uh, for 10 days at Millbrook was just a fantastic opportunity to all be in the same room and get on the same page. So um, we're, we're working out how we can get everyone in the same room again to, uh, to show, show what we've done. Um, and it's not an easy task always. Yeah. Just blending together people from different places, different, backgrounds, different perspectives on music sounds like it'd be a challenge. Yeah. I mean, you'd be surprised, uh, you know, how much time, you know, just 
across all the different uh, genres and projects I, I, I work with, it's like the, the more uh, talented the group of folks you're trying to get together in the same room, <laughs> you know, they're all mm-hmm. really good at what they do. So it's, it's going to be a challenge to uh, find a time when they're all available. Um, so once you get that worked out, making the art, once you get in the same room, that's really, that's the fun part. Well, I'm happy you've done all of that work for us so we can enjoy what you've put forward and just have a great time seeing Fringe Music, Kickwheel, Ensemble Theater, and everything that Bizarre Productions has to offer. Absolutely. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to, to talk to me today. Yeah, thank you for speaking with us at the Greylock Glass, and please feel free to tell us where we can see more, read more, hear more, and anything you'd like to shout out going Yeah, forward. absolutely. Everything, all the detailed information can be found at BerkshireFringe.org. And, um, yeah, we just want to thank uh, the Mass Cultural Council has a local cultural council program and the cities of uh, Pittsfield, New Marlborough, Stockbridge, Lenox, Hinsdale, Peru, Washington, and West Stockbridge have all uh, chipped in small amounts to make this uh, little festival that we've got going on, the Fringe Music, happen. And um, also wanted to thank the city of Pittsfield and the First Friday Arts Walk. Uh, they've been really supportive and helping us make this happen too. And then, of course, Shire City Sanctuary is really our our partner in this in this series. And um, yeah, you can. Uh, link to it from BerkshireFringe.org, or you can go directly to kickwheel.org to find out more about Passage. Um, So that's also a good place to check out. All right. Well, thank you, Peter Wise, the co-artistic director of Bizarre Productions. Um, Fringe Music is going to be this Friday in the city of Pittsfield, and I'm sure we're all very excited to see the first show. Thank you again. Thanks, William.
And with me today is Jeff Hudson of Williamstown, Massachusetts, who has seen the local music scene uh, from the inside for quite some time. Thanks for being on the show, Jeff. Anytime. Pleasure to be here. Now, I have to tell you, I just got finished listening to your your most recent release, uh, TM, which uh, I, is the title track, uh, Transcendental Meditation. And I'm really impressed at the, the level of creativity and the freshness uh, that I hear in that, uh, so I, I thanks for thanks for that uh, for that sort of uh, promo. It was, a lo- it was a long cold winter, and that's what came out of it. <laughs> it was a long cold winter. Well, you heat <laughs> things up pretty well with that. Let me ask you, what uh, what was the? I mean, I thought I detected a bit of a sort of a running theme. Did you have a particular theme in mind or a particular thread that you were looking to explore? Uh, not really, but basically what I've learned is I've made a lot of new wave music in the 80s and punk music. It was all about 110 to 120 beats per minute. And um, so a lot of this record's at like 128, 130, and there's some stuff at 112, 122. But I wanted to keep the tempos up a little bit, so it was uh, kind of an up bold thing to work on and listen to. Do do our bodies have a physiological response to to the beat? I do think so. I mean, I think if you go down to 112, 108, 106, I think it, you know, it's, you know, you're starting to lie on the couch. I think when you're at 130, 128, you definitely, it's a heart rate thing. I just think it's more activating. Mm-hmm. Now you say that you have done a lot of new wave music in the eighties. Let's, uh, let's go back if we can, um, to sure. your, to your entrance into music. When, when was that? Well, basically I went to London in 77 and uh, I was really old. I was 27 years old. And um, I saw you know, the whole punk thing breaking. I went to some punk clubs. Saw the whole thing breaking. And in Boston, it was breaking just in New York, Ramones, Talking Heads, 77, 78. So I came home, and I knew this band, La Peste, which were a big Boston band, um, really good punk band. And um, we actually borrowed uh, their bass amp. And uh, I think their base before we bought equipment, my wife did, and they they kind of named us the Rentals because we were borrowing stuff. Uh, so we were the original Rentals, and uh, we started a punk band '77, '78, '79. Uh, Jane Hudson, Pseudo Carol, Billy Bacon, Jeff Hudson, and we ended up opening for the Clash's first American performance uh, in 1979, February, in the Harvard Square Theater. So that was kind of the intro to music from uh, London. I love '60s music. I was really into the, uh, you know, the whole '60s psychedelic thing. Um, and then, you know, the, love the class, the Pistols, Elvis Costello, Magazine, all of that. And then, as synthesizers kind of started coming in, I was teaching video, making a lot of video at the point, and I wanted to get into sound effects. So I started buying little oscillators and modular units. Um, and at the museum school, they had electronic music department. And I was, you know, fascinated by the, you know, the early modular synthesizers. So I started adding that in with guitars. So we bought a, a, a Moog Prodigy, Juno 60, TR808, and 81, 82, 83, 84. And I transferred basically from total guitar music to kind of guitar synth music. Hmm. And we started uh, the Manhattan Project in New York, and then Jeff J. Hudson. We released Flesh in 83. And uh, World Trade, I think, in '82. And there were a combination of uh, TR808, uh, you know, Moogs and uh, guitars. Yeah, I actually uh, in the, I guess the mid '80s, I had a Juno 106 that I, I wish I still had today. That was sure. a, that was a great machine. Sure. Um, yeah, they're really neat. How did uh, how did the introduction of these new technologies 
affect the musical outputs, do you think? I mean, other than, obviously... Go ahead. You know, it's a good and bad thing in the end. I mean, I think that's why I work like dark. Um, the, um, I'm playing acoustic guitar now, trying to get my guitar chops back up. I'm really enjoying the actual physical standing up and playing. Um, I think the thing about the electronic music, there's a lot of sitting involved. You know, you write a pattern and then you can cut and paste. Particularly now, it's all cut and paste. Um, and I really like that too. So, I mean, I'm kind of a schizophrenic two faces of Jeff. I really like the power of the guitar and the chords and the activation of that. And then at the same time, you know, I love cut and pasting and, you know, fooling around with the filters. So, uh, can't really choose between the two. Like mm. them both. Now, but I do think that right. the synthesizer has, you know, revolutionized, you know, music forever in the computer, obviously. Yeah, uh, unless we lose power, I don't think that it's going away anytime right. soon. Right, and that's why I'm playing acoustic guitar. Good point. <laughs> well, you know, it's... Drillex will be out of a job. I know, I know. Well, I mean, the funny thing is, you know, we have had some, some pretty tough winters in the past, and we've lost power for, for extended periods of time. So those of us with a guitar lying around will at least get to entertain ourselves and our, our friends and family. Yeah, no, I think it's a good thing. And I think... Um, you don't want to depend too much on, you know, the electronic thing. And it's really frightening with the big live shows nowadays. People are running lights and sounds off of computers. And I, I guess Laurie Anderson had a uh, trouble a couple of years ago. The Brooklyn Academy of Music, the whole thing went down. It took like an hour to reboot before the, you know, the audience had to be, you know, go back to the lobby. We're going to reboot. Um, yeah. So I... it's hard to depend on it. I mean, I've been in situations uh, just running tape recorders and everything and making sure it all works. It's always hairy when you hit the first play button if it's going to work. <laughs> You're having an analog backup might not be a bad idea. Yeah, we had actually used to run TAC 4 tracks and ITI 2 tracks as backing tapes. We opened for Ministry and PIL and all kinds of bands in the 80s. And, you know, a lot of times they'd run, like Ministry used to run a 4-track, you know, yeah. by the soundboard. Yeah. Um, so we, we used to drag a tape deck with us. You couldn't do it all live either because it was gate and clock. It wasn't MIDI. MIDI came in about 83, 84, 85. So the early stuff was uh, kind of luck if you got it. Yeah, yeah. Now talk about the early stuff. There was, I mean, punk was a response to something. And I wonder if you could if you could answer the question, what was it to you? What was it a response well, to? Yeah, I think basically what happened is the 60s, you know, had the flower power thing, which was fantastic. But it was, you know, utopian and idealistic. Um, and too bad it didn't go forever, but it didn't. And then, you know, in England, I think the economy really crashing out and people having no jobs, kind of like now. Um, you know, you just have this, you know, Joe Strummer, you have to give him a lot of credit, those guys for, because they were hippies too. And uh, they kind of said, you know, this isn't so good. We need to re have a revolution. And even though the 60s people did the revolution through drugs, I think the uh, you know, political nature of the clash and, and stuff was uh, you know, for economic uh, salvation. None of this stuff ever works, obviously, but it's you know, hope. It brings hope to people. Um, so I think there's a lot of, um, you know, I don't think there's as much difference as people would like to make. And I think each musical thing, even the electronic music revolution with the modern techno and you know, all the big rave festivals. I mean, those are revolutions in their own way. You know, I mean, they're sexual, they're drug, and they're, you know, music. Um, so I think it's all made of the same stuff. Uh, it's just each generation wants to, you know, declare their freedom in a way. Um, so there's some more similarities and differences. I suppose now that you put it that way, you can 
trace the the path of the economy, trace the path of you know political freedom, uh, freedom to communicate, freedom to assemble. You you trace the ebbs and flows of those things, and probably not surprising uh, to see some of these these uh, you know musical waves uh, hitting yeah. the shore when they do. And even Bob, look at Bob Dylan, you know, how many roads does a man have to walk down and all of that. I mean, all the, you know, kind of liberating poetry from that era, you know, it's pretty relevant today. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that uh, you point out that the economy is, is, was similar. I mean, back in the, in the late... For- I think it's a driving force. I think you can actually see, I mean, I can predict that, you know, the band, the Orwells, have you heard those? Mm-hmm. They're really great out of Chicago. And I, I predict you're going to see a little more of the, you know, kind of hard, hard, you know, punky revolutionary music being made because of the economy. Or, you know, the people are just so depressed. I mean, what you're having now is kind of emo acoustic music. And also resurgence of all the bluegrass stuff. It's um, interesting that the bluegrass is making the resurgence now because that, in its own way, is weird. Is, yeah. 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 Well, I, I think that there's a, a level of frustration in various forms in in these different right. these different genres i mean you know certainly punk there is an, an a very, there's a, a a very obvious frustration but in emo maybe it's less frustrated and more you know it, there's an ennui uh that's yeah. you know, yeah. a melancholy sure. um, but i i think that you're right i think that there is a growing a building sense of irritation at our state and yeah. the possibility that uh, people are going to start expressing in music what they can't express really any other way. I mean, the, the thing about the grassroots, I mean, like they had a Tweed Festival in Vermont, he's a festival. I think that's a real interesting movement because basically, obviously these people aren't going to get record deals with, you know, Capital or CBS or Warner Brothers. I hope they don't. But, uh, you know, those companies are you know, so much into, you know, the big Katy Perry stuff and all of that that, yeah, the roots music stuff has, you know, they want their own world and not having, you know, the big labels involved because they generally fuck things up. And the, I, the MTV Awards uh, this year, I mean, they couldn't even begin to watch any of it. It was so terrible. I mean, the old days, at least you would have an Oasis or some band there that was pretty good. Um, and now it's just, you know, people lip syncing and stuff. It's pretty rough. A lot of dancing, you know. It should be called the, uh, the Dancing Awards show. Hmm. Yeah. So the Music Awards show. No, I I, actually, I heard a comparison of the acts that were on the very first MTV Music Video Awards, and the uh, and and this most recent one last week, and it's uh, it was amazing. Uh, the it acts really that is. they had, they had the police, they had you know, the police, they had on Cyndi Lauper, uh, they had on I think uh, uh, the Cars. I think won first Moon Moon Man Award Best Video. The mm-hmm. Cars, you might think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. Great I, I, music. Yeah, these were acts that you you thought of as musicians first, and then entertainers second, maybe. Exactly. Now it's all entertainment, and the music's really secondary. It's Do you think? Up. I mean, you know. Are we? Are have we just grown that vapid that that majority of us now don't perceive the difference uh, that has only really taken you know, a couple of decades to, to set in. Yeah, no, I think time moves a lot faster. I mean, you wake up when you're 50 or 60, and I think that happens a little quicker to people than they realize. Um, I mean, Debbie, Harry, and Blondie are out there as like an oldies act. They're really good live. She's a great singer, and they have great music. 
play Glastonbury. That's fantastic. But you know, these people are 60, 65 years old. You know, it happens very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, each generation just comes in and uh, takes the next thing over. But it's interesting. The major record labels have actually ignored, um, you know, Deadmau and Skrillex and all that stuff, too. They, they kind of missed that whole boat. Um, they couldn't capitalize on it. And they're trying to. I mean, I think Columbia signed a couple of the big acts. And they're getting those acts to produce some of their bigger artists to give that EDM feel, you know. Mm. And you... uh, it makes me a little sick, this mm. point. Well, you know, what's interesting about about music today is that the musicians, and, and we could talk about Spotify or the new Apple Music service, but yeah. I, I want to set those off to the side because they're not really what I'm talking about. Um, but musicians don't need the labels to reach their audience now if they know how to work it. In in the digital media space, right? I mean, we've got uh, we've got CD Baby, we've got uh, yeah. Reverb Nation, SoundCloud. Uh, there are all of these ways that musicians can put it out there, and right. and people can listen, decide that they like a particular act or yeah. a particular release, and they can they can buy it right there. They can download it. Sometimes they have a, a physical CD. Sometimes you can even download. Um, I think it's Bandcamp. Uh, you'll often see people with vinyl available. Yeah, but I do think the sales thing is going to be is pretty much over. I mean, I believe that the whole idea of buying the music is pretty much over. I mean, even Beats. I mean, how many people are going to? I mean, I guess they'll pay per month, but who's going to do that when there's free services? Uh, you know, as I I like to say, I really miss LimeWire. <laughs> um, you know, I got my 4,500 songs from them, and it was a wonderful experience. Um, so I, I don't know if people want to pay a buck a song or 10 bucks for a download. I I don't like doing it. I mean, occasionally I'll buy a song, but generally after I bought, I haven't bought any in the last year. Have you bought any? I've bought a couple. I have bought a couple, yeah, but it, it it hasn't been, it typically hasn't been a whole a whole CD. Typically, it'll and also be... the idea that so I think that's kind of a falling knife. I'm not sure what's going to happen with that. I think touring is it, and I think the big guys know that. I mean, the big artists, you know, know that they that you know the touring's where the money is, the merchandising. Um, I think the media stuff's almost a giveaway. You know, just like when music videos were a giveaway, you know, mm. the, the music's a giveaway. You know, to get into the show. And then, of course, at the show, you've got merch. T-shirts, bumper yep. stickers, uh, all of that. Yep. Huh. I mean, that's an interesting take on it. Um, I don't know whether to feel upset and disturbed or whether to feel liberated by that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to feel either. I do know the major labels are taking a big hit. I don't feel bad about that because I managed emergency broadcast network on TBT Records and a couple other bands. And, you know, the general contract of a major label was 12% recoupable, which means you would get, as an artist, on a ten dollar CD, twelve percent. That's a dollar twenty, but it's recoupable against recording costs, marketing, and video, and maybe even tour support. So you'd have to sell an average of like a hundred, two hundred thousand units to even start seeing a profit. Um, so those contracts were brutal, and the only people who made money from the actual record uh, money from the labels were people who sold half a million of all. So you're saying that Go basically, ahead. you're saying that there's so much. There's so much the, the the percentage is so small that yeah. it almost is immaterial anyway. Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, you, if 120, like EBM, their the budget was supposed to be 60000 to record the album, which I thought was pretty high. It ended up being 400000 They hired Eno, Bill Laswell. So it was impossible for us ever to pay that back. It would have to be 400, it would have to be a million records to get 120000 on a million dollars, but that would be up to recuperate that's a 40000 recording cost. Mm-hmm. It's not 4 million records to break even. And uh, that's the contracts that most labels had, Warner Brothers, all the big labels. So only the big guys made money in the touring, and the labels made 90% of the money. And on a CD, it cost them 50 cents to make, they make $9.50 profit. Now, Tower Records would get a cut, you know, Warner Brothers would get a cut, the artists would get the smallest cut. So it's a very unfair system. And in most systems, it's just like, look, it was just the worst deal you could imagine. And there would just be five to seven album deals. Too. These were not short deals. Hmm. So uh, pretty much people were screwed. You were dreaming for a record deal, but by the time you got it, you know, A, you'd have to have a hit. B, you'd have to have a really big hit to make any money. So it was pretty depressing because I remember working really hard with these bands. And you finally get to the top of the mountain. They basically just owed them a lot of money. Well, let me ask you about other ways that not just musicians, artists of all kinds are starting to uh, mm-hmm. to see if they can't figure out how to make a living, at least a survival ship. Mm-hmm. We've got um, Amanda Palmer, yeah, right. who uh, who wrote the book, was it The Art of Asking or Don't Be Afraid to yeah, Ask? Yeah. Well, I, had lunch, I had lunch with her three or four years ago. She's a very impressive person. Yeah, and she's she's sharp as a tack too, and she's now using um, she's now using a service called uh, Patreon, P A T R E O N, I believe. Okay. Um, and basically, gosh, if I could find the darn thing, yeah, P A T R E O N, Patreon or Patreon, it's a crowdfunding website, and rather than doing a sort of a Kickstarter campaign. Um, what that does is it allows artists to put out an invitation for people to join. And when they, when the artist puts out a song, an album, a, an article, a video, whatever it might be, um, okay. the members kick in a, a pre-selected amount and there's no cap. There's no sunset. So if you want to put in 50 cents every time somebody releases a song, then you automatically pay 50 cents when they release it. And it isn't as if at the end of 30 days, if you haven't made your, your goal, your fundraising goal, it, you, you don't get anything. Um, this well, is she a, did a million dollars from Kickstarter. You know that, right? She did indeed. Yes, yeah, she did. And that's an insane record. I mean, people are a little angry about it. At the same time, I, I, don't, I think she's fine. Um, I think she worked real hard to get there, though. She was in Dresden Doll. She was a performance artist in Boston, on the streets of Boston for many years. I mean, you know, it wasn't an overnight success. The girl's been at it for 10 or 15 years, worked very hard, did a lot of shitty gigs. Um, you know, so she deserves what she's gotten. She's worked very hard. Yeah, I mean, the number... And maybe she was not a big label. I think Ben Foles produced her record that kind of bombed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think she was on Roadrunner, and Ben Foles produced the record. It's kind of fortunate it didn't do very well. So she was better off on her own. And, and and I think that it's 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 shown. I mean, people can you know they're going to be haters, no matter oh, yeah. what you're doing there. Anybody but, who becomes successful is going to have haters. Yeah, I mean, I I think that you 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 paint that that with with not too fine a brush. Uh, you do some shitty gigs. I mean, there are. I mean, she has paid her dues. 
Uh, most anybody who's been in the business, even you know five or ten years, has really paid some some hardcore dues. Sometimes to the point of deciding whether you should have breakfast, lunch, or, or dinner that day. You know, it's amazing she hasn't been any of these festivals. I mean, I watch a lot of stuff on YouTube and on Palladia, stuff in Glastonbury, and all this. I'm surprised Amanda Palmer hasn't been on any of these festivals. I haven't seen her gigging in any festivals. I, I, maybe she does, but I, I just haven't seen it. We'll have to look. I'll have to. I'll have to check that out one of these days. You know what I think that is has to do with, though. I think the record companies control a lot of the booking in those festivals. I think Live Nation, some of the big boys get involved, and I mean, the band called. Well, I'm not going to mention names because I've heard sure. different bands. So. They're on Warner Brothers, and they get you know they get into all of it. So they're on they're at the Bonnaroo, what do they call it? They're at the big festivals, the little festivals, they tour support. They're opening for big people. So I think it is kind of it's kind of still done a lockdown system. I think being an outsider is still difficult. Oh yeah, I would say I would say so, and I think that um, yeah. what she is is she is um, she's an outlier at the moment, maybe yeah. paving the way toward a new economy because this is not isolated to music. This is happening in journalism. This is happening in, in uh, exactly. different kinds. So it's... Automobile, yeah, cab rides, Uber, Airbnb. It's a disruptive world. I think it's wonderful, but it's going to be, people are going to fight it because obviously the, the hotel industry hates Airbnb. And we need rules and regulations, and they love that. So, you know, the cops are going to be beating people at the Airbnb stops. It's going to get ugly. <laughs> But at the end of it, you know, when we come out the other side, if there is any other side, uh, it, it's yeah. quite possible that we're going to have an economy based on what people actually want and what they're willing to pay for, rather yeah. than this is the only op these are the the one you can have A or you can have B, you know. And I think and, it's a still it's almost a sixties utopia though. I think that we're thinking it will work, but you know we're going to find out like that, you know. The Hilton Company is really behind the Airbnb, you know, or something. <laughs> so I don't know. We've got to watch it, you know. Well, Government heard... involvement is not far away. Ugh. As soon as they can see a tax or a fee, they want to be involved. But isn't it know? funny that sometimes that tax or that fee is what paves the way to, to the possibility that it'll exist at all? Um, right. You know, but I, I, think that, I think that I heard a, a really great expression or a really great thought once that um, – trying to remember i can't remember the exact phraseology there but the idea is that in the 50s and 60s early 60s the record companies didn't know what the kids wanted to hear and so right. you were able to put out albums especially of experimental music in the late 60s early 70s that would never get made today they'd never get right. made um, but since right. they didn't really know what was going to sell uh you know there are a lot of, like pink floyd would never make it today um, right. So, and also look at the, uh, look at these tracks that were like twelve minutes long. Yeah, you know, uh, I think uh, some of the early tracks were eight, ten, twelve minutes long. Well, Quarter of the Crimson, the, yeah, Quarter of the Crimson King by King Crimson, whatever, twenty-seven minutes or something. Um, but uh, I think but the original I, Light My Fire was eight minutes long too. And people liked it. People, you know, yeah, it was great. DJs liked it, it because they gave them a chance to get up and go to the John, take a break, exactly. exactly. Um, so and radio's been, you know, I think the other problem we have basically is just too many people, too much music. I mean, you've got the thing where there's so many different ways to just, you know, get your music out, and, and in a way, it's confusing, I think, for the audience. I mean, obviously, they find it over time, and they, it's just a lot of stuff out there. You know, it's what four, five, six billion people. 
And they've got the internationalization of the internet where you get music from everywhere, you know. Well, so it's pretty crowded, though. There. It is crowded, but you know what's what I like about the crowdedness is that if I fire up SoundCloud and I select an, an artist, it will play me artists that are similar. Mm -hmm. And so I might be listening passively with it, you know, in the background and then my ears right. will prick up and I'll hear something and I'll walk over to the screen. And I'll say, well, who's that? SoundCloud's good. I mean, I do think that is a wonderful program. Seems fairly um, benign. It's easy to post. You can listen. There's a lot of interesting stuff on it. So I think that's a, a nice uh, thing. I, I'm still not nuts about the streaming services for money. I mean, I think, you know, those are still a little questionable. Um, I guess they have ads like radio, so you don't have to pay. So maybe that's okay. So, mm. Well, you know, things like Spotify. I don't know where all that money goes. Well, yeah, I mean, and even... I mean, Beats, Beat, I think, may be a failure for Apple. I mean... I think, I mean, Spotify and Pandora already beat them to the thing. I'm not sure that. They have 11 million people who have signed up. I really want to know for free. wonder how many people will actually pay, you know? That's a good question. That is a good question. I haven't signed up yet. No. As you said, there's so much already out there. Yeah. Let's talk about what's out there from Jeff Hudson because uh, we've spent okay. uh, we've spent a while talking about music, and, and right. I think we could probably um, we could probably carry this conversation on yeah. For a long time. Well, well, sometime we'll have a uh, coffee or a uh, beer together and hang out. That's so a basically, I'll say a couple things about the songs. Transit on Meditation, I got the riff, which sounded like a little bit of a George Harrison Beatles thing, the kind of like sitar kind of riff. And um, I didn't intend to put any lyrics on the record at all, but there's two or three lyrics, and they are kind of witty and funny. So Transit on I know Alex Gray. You ever hear of Alex Gray? I don't think I have. He's worth Googling, actually. You write him down, Alex Gray. Do he right? is a mystic guy uh, from New York. He's, in, he's, got a, uh, he's got kind of like a cult following. He's a king of LSD. And he's uh, an old student of mine from the Museum School of Fine Arts, Boston. I haven't seen him in 30 years, but he has a big uh, house up in upper state New York. He's got these festivals and these evening full moon nights, very spiritual with drugs. So I was thinking of Alex Gray a little bit, and I thought it was spiritual, you know, transcendental meditation. And then you have primal scream therapy, which is screaming. So I figured, well, you know, let's just, you know, put your eyes, close your eyes, and then scream transcendental meditation. So I thought it was really a funny song to do, and um, it's ironic and tongue-in-cheek and a little bit of a wink-wink. But I'm really happy at how it came out. It's kind of distorted, a little rough. Um, but I've gotten some good response. I mean, people who get it really think it's, it's a neat song. Well, I um, certainly do. I, it, I love that. And the, not... the other, the one, the other one I like is spiritual candle because uh, you know it's a spiritual candle. It's not your normal candle, you know. You get down at Friday. This one happens to be spiritual. Uh, so it's how, like how we look at things, you know. Like we think we're going to give them extra meaning, you know. Um, but to me, and that was that was a dance throbber. It's really like 130 beats per minute. You know, it's really grinding bass line. Um, so that's one of my favorites too. So Transcendental Meditation Spiritual Candle. And then a lot of the other stuff is really just based on, you know, trying to get some strong melodies. You know, some really strong, you know, synth lines. You know, kind of Gary Newman it up a little bit. Um, so that's how it all came. But I'm very happy with the record. And, you know, I look forward to this winter. I hope we do another one. You know, get my reason up and uh, 
and do it. I do love making the music. It's really fun. Now, who... And I'm a computer nerd, too. I love, I love the computer. I just, you know, I'm a big fan. I've been a fan for a long time. I liked, uh, I liked Mud Club a lot. What's the story behind Mud Club? Well, I actually worked there for two or three months. Uh, this guy named Steve Mass, M-A-S-S. It's funny, his name of the club was M-U-D-D, so I guess he came up with that from his last name. He had a loft downtown, and he started the club with a bathtub full of beer, you know, just like a party, you know, for artists and musicians. But then he finally got a liquor license and a stage and a PA system, and it was very down and dirty. It wasn't like CBGB. CBGB's was like just full of Lysol and, you know, graffiti. But the club was a little cleaner, but it was still down and dirty. It just painted battleship gray. Uh, the funniest thing on the stage he had, you know, the, the, the metal grates in New York over uh, store windows? Yeah. That was his stage curtain. <laughs> just brilliant. So kind he of... would actually, unchained, you know, he would raise the curtain and the band would be behind there to start playing. And at the end of the show, they'd lower the, the, the metal curtain. <laughs> that was genius. Um, they had really good DJs. And I worked upstairs. I put the video system in. Um, he didn't want any music videos played. He just wanted video art or weird stuff. So I actually produced a bunch of, you know, weird, like, skeletons and, you know, stroby stuff and put them upstairs. He'd walk around at night with a remote control, and he'd turn the... TVs on or off, so that would determine if I was basically working or not. Um, but it was a great club. Uh, Lounge Lizards, The Contortions, First Tetras, um, great DJ, Sean Cassette, um, Anita Sarko, Ivan Ivan, uh, Richard Swerd, playing all the latest kind of new wavy, punky stuff. And, and it lasted about two or three years, and unfortunately, the IRS showed up one day and they were worried about the taxes and this and that. And actually, this is a true story, and you know, people do know about it. I guess Steve made the mistake of trying to bribe an IRS agent, you know, ten or twenty thousand in cash, and he ended up in jail for two years. That was the end of the Bud Club. But he was a great guy, and he hired me to do. We went out in my station wagon to Uncle Steve's on Canal Street, bought three twenty-seven inch Trinitrons, which were the big TV yeah. back then. Yeah. And we, you know, put him in the club. Um, but he was very nice to me. You know, New York was a tough town, but there's a guy named Jim Forat who Brooks Horizon Dance Interior and Steve Nass the Mug Club, and they're both, you know, really great people, very, very visionary people. So, what? Uh, where can people find this CD if they want to? If they want, uh, it's actually on. It's on iTunes, uh, believe it or not, and it's on um, CD Baby and iTunes too. So it's actually available for purchase at 10 songs, $9.99 and 99 track. And uh, definitely, definitely for all it's out there. Well, we will put on, we'll put a link to that in the show notes for sure. Oh, that'd be good. And a link sure. to your, uh, do you have a, a website as well? Um, Facebook page? Facebook. Yeah, you can reach me through that. That's where it's where it's at. Jeff Hudson Facebook. I've got a definitely friend request. Welcome to it. I haven't hit my limit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Jeff Hudson, we will catch up again with you. And perhaps one of these days, um, we'll just have you on uh, to talk about music in general. Uh, because sure. well, I, I love talking. I, I like talking to you. We had a good uh, rapport. We sure did. We sure did. And, uh, and we're going to have that beer one of these days. All right. Well, then, thank you. And we will talk to you again soon. And stay cool, Jeff. 
All right, keep your bits in line. Adios, amigos. Take care, bye-bye. Bye.
RealLifeLabs.com. That's all for today, Friday, September 4th. Have a fantastic weekend.